0: Good
1: day. Good day. Queer stuff. Back to the queers. Queer stuff. But it gets interesting because now we're in the 70s. Ooh. But I'm going to do a little recap. Okay. On the origins of queer horror and the manifestation of queer through monster. We, <laughs> she's got her spooky voice on. That's mm-hmm. the spooky story voice. That's it. That's it. In the documentary Queer for Fear, which I talked about in the original episode, introduced it. Episode 3, Leslie Headland, who's the co-creator of the show Russian Doll, states, Horror films that utilize transformation are about fear. The fear of losing one's own identity. That there is something inside of us that we cannot control that will ultimately take over who we are. There is a fear of the other, but the other at times is ourself and a fear within ourselves and what happens when it finally comes out. And we know that through the use of the wolf man, that's been a great metaphor for unbridled sexual and animalistic instincts <laughs> <laughs> or the shadow as Carl Jung would call it. So the idea behind Jekyll and Hyde, I started to talk a little bit about this in the first episode. We are trying to be one thing but we are actually the other thing and we're trying to control which one comes out. So this idea of multiple selves within one person, which are trying to be contained. So as queer folks, we have to deliberate in what parts of the self come out when they do, how they do. And then we have to think about safety. So there's a lot going on cognitively, unconsciously sometimes when we are out in society We spend a lot of our lives asking for permission or apologizing. So when you're given the message that your true self is monstrous or unacceptable or offensive, you spend a lot more time repressing it, trying to change its form, silencing it and erasing it. And so we see this a lot through films like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, through The Wolfman. Brian Fuller, who was the creator of the show Hannibal, says the story of the werewolf is about being cursed since birth. There is a self-loathing we experience as queer human beings because we are told we are monsters and we are told that we belong on the fringes of society. So cursed since birth is something that many queer folks have been made to believe. We're, you know, others have been told that we were not cursed since birth but we gave into the evils of the world and by losing our traditional values we have chosen to be the monster. So either way whether we've chosen it or we were born with it, it's our fault in some way, shape, or form. So we love that we love being offensive, even though a queer person would not describe our identity as offensive, but saying that we've chosen something is like, well, you're choosing to be offensive. We're like, yeah, but we're not, we don't see our behavior as offensive. It's really been assigned to us. And the idea of it being offensive is generally accepted by conservative minds who've created the concept of evil to control the moral compass of society. In the 30s, gay and lesbians had to hide. They had to pass, but things began to change. Suppression of the monster was simply packaged a different way. An article from Vulture 55, uh, excuse me, from Vulture, 55 Essential Queer Horror Films states, but with the final dissolution of the Hayes Codes in 1968, the 70s saw the cinematic gays come sprinting out of the closet, <laughs> even if they didn't run into the most flattering light. The 70s brought us an updated and more flamboyant Dorian Gray. I picture Dorian Gray like on ice skates.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Jeez.
1: (laughs) The Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Vampire Lovers, The Daughters of Darkness, and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. In some ways, if we were going to be labeled as offensive, flamboyant, and on the fringes of society, why didn't we just own it? Why didn't we then use that offensiveness as empowerment? So in many ways, by deeming us as offensive and immoral, we use that to taunt and control, which is essentially what a monster does. We all eventually became the oppressions that are assigned to us if the message is influential enough. And society had to lay in the bed that they made. Gays became promiscuous and drug-addicted Because they were told for so long how immoral and disgusting they were. They were told their love didn't matter. So hypersexualization was a way to feel in control of their sexuality. And also as a way to reaffirm the lovelessness that society had positioned them in. Why get close to someone if your love for them is forbidden and rejected? So in the 1970s, the lesbian vampires are loose. Yeah, they were. Right? You see a lot of lesbian vampires in the 1970s. There isn't anything more threatening than a woman being in control of her own sexuality. Any woman, cis, trans, gay, straight, bi, or pan, a woman being in control of her own sexuality is a horror story to most men. And when her advances do not involve a cisgendered male, her behavior becomes the ultimate evil. So when she begins to seduce like a male, she is actually deemed a predator and deplorable. She becomes what a man has been permitted to be, a mirror that is held up to a straight man. So when she no longer wants or desires a man, her behavior becomes devastatingly destructive to men. Mm -hmm. The 1980s come around (laughs) and it changes even more. I bet. Because now we have... President Ronald Reagan yep, and the resurgence of conservatism, the AIDS crisis, and the mainstreaming of queer culture. There's a rebellion that starts to happen, but then the gays get blamed for AIDS. So Ben Schaaf, who wrote Monsters in the Closet, if you uh, have not listened to the first one, which I recommend you do if you're listening to this one now, Benchoff discusses how the creation of the slasher and its offshoot, the Fuck and Die film, as he named them, read as AIDS-era warnings about the dangers of unsanctioned sex and sexuality. A variety of vampire films during the 80s had symbolism that related to the AIDS scare of the time. Many of the killers in these films end up as either queer a transvestite, or what we once called transsexuals, movies such as Dressed to Kill, Deadly Blessing, and into the early 90s, Silence of the Lambs, Buffalo Bill. Queer folks began speaking out on the negative portrayals of their community in horror at this time. At the same time, queer stereotypes became the sensationalized outlaw, the one breaking down binary norms and patriarchy we all remember this Catherine Tremell in the movie basic instinct was reframed as empowering and one who actually didn't pay for it in the end. She didn't die for once. Homosexuality was becoming more visible in the late eighties and early nineties. That was so revolutionary. So when she, revolutionary. When she didn't
0: die or get, you know, Oh my God,
1: she was in control and she was bisexual the in end. this film until the end. And she wasn't, she didn't die.
0: Oh yeah. She used unilaterally. Whether you were a male or a female, she was going to use you.
1: Yep. And so it was becoming more visible in the late 80s and early 90s, and it was being depicted differently. Guy Lodge, from his 2022 Guardian article, Visibly Horrified, the coming out of queer terror cinema, reports, as the AIDS pandemic raged, more hostile queer representations became widespread in horror films ranging from Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing to Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, to Jonathan Demme's The Silence of the Lambs, serial killing was routinely linked to homosexuality, transgenderism, and or transvestism. This message remains in many conservative circles today. Damn you gays! <laughs> oh, yeah. It sounds like you wrote a whole article on this shit. Well, I took, Thoughts and pieces from a lot of the different things that I read. And then I added a lot of just my personal feelings about Mm -hmm. how all of this um, sits with me. Yeah. And so a lot of it are ideas of others and my ideas all kind of put together.
0: Yeah. Um, I was just thinking we should put it on the website. if It's all written up because it sounded like you were reading it. So I thought, oh, well, I don't know. I think she wrote a whole thing. Yeah. Which is cool.
1: It's very interesting. What was it like for you to research all of this? It was. I mean, some of the stuff I knew, but some of it I didn't put together in this way. And I right. think once I start to started to piece it together, then my own experience. And I was a child in the '80s. I wasn't an adult, but I do remember the sur- like the, the surge of the AIDS crisis and all of that. That I, it was really, it ended up being really easy to write because anything that's personal. Sure. Right. I think it's fascinating too. Right. I think the way that our, how much we forget that the horror genre is so near and dear to the hearts of many queer people. Right. And I don't think we always consciously walk around knowing it's because of this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I wouldn't think you would staying within the eighties here for a moment, tracking the vampire was one of the first essays on the negative portrayals of homosexuality and horror. So this essay was written by a woman uh, by the name of Sue Ellen case and case States. I really, this part really resonated with me being a queer woman. She says there, the vampire is subjected to the familiar mode of seduced and abandoned or the recreational use of the lesbian for while. Such heterosexist feminist discourse flirts with her ultimately double crosses her with the hegemonic notion of woman, reinscribing her in the generational model and making horrible what must not be seductive. So what does this mean? In other words, straight women used lesbians as accessories, objects to experiment and toy with, to explore their own homosexual urges only for the lesbian to be rejected and humiliated. Once the straight woman was to step back into her heteronormative and patriarchal society. And we see this all the fucking time. And we see that being enacted
0: and reenacted and reenacted also then generated by both parties. Yes. And that traumatic pattern, right? Right. You experience that trauma of let's say a gay woman, a queer woman being, in love with a straight woman and then it that pattern doesn't stop. They then start to always date straight women Mm -hmm. and then that trauma over and over and over and over again. And then we blame the queer woman because it's like, well, you're picking these people. It's like, yeah, but that's a trauma bond that's been created.
1: And there, yeah, that's right. There's something about I'm being qualified by a member of society who is deemed normal and acceptable and worshiped and there must be something inherently wonderful about me if she's choosing me sure it's really it's sad it is um and sometimes so much that the queer woman will own it like no I turned her it's like no honey you didn't you're being used (laughs) okay being used okay we've all been there as queer women most of us anyway so in the 80s Uh, queer characters began to revel in their transformation versus like in the past where transformation was this fear relish in the very things that make the heteronormative communities feel nervous and threatened. So this tension building in the howling, the movie, the howling resulting in a group of werewolves finding one another, the symbolism in this is really profound. So Karen White, who's played by Dee Wallace states, a secret society exists and is living among all of us. They are neither people nor animals, but something in between. Queers are to be feared. She didn't say that last part, but essentially that's what they're saying. Right. Right we also know, and you and I have had this conversation about A Nightmare on Elm Street Mm 2, became one of the queerest coded films of its time, an inspiration for the documentary Scream Queen, which you and I have also talked about, which was released in 2019. And the documentary examines the infamous homoerotic subtext and the special place the film holds in the Nightmare franchise, as well as the gay film Criterion. So once very controversial, it's now actually very appreciated by many who are fans of the franchise. And we know that Mark Patton, who played the lead role at the time, was was in the closet. Uh, but his character in the film was identified as a repressed gay teen who ends up confronting his male gym teacher uh, in a gay bar. So it was just, I mean, like, yeah. all over this without being it able was. to say it. The stereotypes were all over oh, it. Oh, my God. And then the other one that you and I have brought up all over, I mean, I think throughout the five years that we've been doing the this podcast is hellraiser which became a cult favorite among the gay community right one of my favorites but i wasn't in the gay
0: community but it was still one of my favorites because i
1: think it also resonates with folks who like live outside of the box Absolutely. as well no pun intended puzzle
0: Max. box i'm not i'm in my box not outside
1: Chiola, author of uh, the Article 55 Essential Queer Horror Film, states that the Cenobites may be villains, but they're also a group of leather enthusiasts <laughs> beckoning straight people to come True. join them in dungeons where they can explore new heights of potential it's pleasure. It's all
0: the BDSM
1: all oh over it. Oh my God. If they're willing to liberate themselves, yeah. and yes, that means being willing to spend eternity in hell. <laughs> so if you're into punishment and BDSM, that might not sound like too bad of a proposition. I mean, the cinemites make it look pretty bad. And then he says, Clive Barker's (laughs) demons are here, they're queer, and they're definitely bringing chains and hooks. (laughs) And they do talk about a box. (laughs) They do. Oh, hey. The 80s also did this thing where there was like, Really problematic themes, despite its <laughs> attempt think? to bring subtext into more explicit presentation. Eighties in all
0: of its glory is very problematic.
1: Well, there's there's <laughs> in two in so many ways. <laughs> there's two specifically. One is more common. The other one, I will get to okay. this one. So the first one is Sleepaway Camp, which has a huge cult following and still one of the most famous queer horror films of its time. If you live under a rock, it's this person killing people around Camp Arawak. Her name's Angela, who is revealed to have a penis in a memorable final shot. You know, it's one of those films that trans folks have either denied it or they have embraced it. There's controversy still around the, the trans coding mm-hmm. as murderous villains. Right. Um, we've also seen this in Psycho, Dressed to Kill, Silence of the Lambs. So whether trans folks are embrace and reclaim the film is really controversial. Well, there's a possibility it could go along with what you were saying uh, earlier.
0: It might have been in last week's episode, but about the it's the culture that made that character mm-hmm. kill. Yes. Not their transness. So if you... If you're looking to re-embrace the film, I imagine that might be part of the way you look at it is it's not because this kiddo was trans, it's because of the
1: monster they are portrayed
0: as because they're different. If we're talking about monsters, I obviously don't think they're monsters.
1: Right, but using that as, and also thinking about how they were forced into repressing their identity and living in the wrong body and they were forced to do that and how that brought, them to the brink once they were taunted and all this stuff. And again, I'm, I'm not making the assumption that if you are a trans person, you want to kill, but using more of what you're saying, Shannon, where like there were all of these societal things that were happening to this person that without society pressuring or repressing them, they would not be this murderous. Well, person. and now
0: we have people gunning down their peers in schools because of being bullied and repressed and all of these other, and those kids are, a variety of yeah. gender identities. So that's not yeah. neither here nor there. That's right.
1: That's right. Y- you ready for the next one? Okay. In 1986, a film titled The AIDS Murders. Oh, what? Okay. Retitled A City in Panic follows a killer who is murdering people who have been diagnosed with AIDS. Seriously? There's a film okay, called really, The AIDS Murders. Yeah, I didn't catch that one. We're going to just leave that one there. Like that a, was probably like a ball That falls in the, in the problematic one. Then we have uh, a, a few other '80s films that were filled with either gay subtext or themes. We have The Lost Boys, Fright Night. Please, those two were lovers. Witchboard, The <laughs> I'm Hunger. Like some of your very favorites. Yeah, The Hunger, Cruising. Enough said on that yep. one. We know it. Okay. Yeah. So those sure. were some other you know big ones and influential ones that were not necessarily problematic, but they had gay subtext too. Absolutely. Them, so.
0: I love the Lost Boys. Are you? What's up? I love the Lost oh Boys. Oh my god!
1: We've don't, talked about don't that one recently. do so. started. Are you ready for a game? Do you okay. want to play a game, Shannon? Okay. Uh, that's a horror movie.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Barely understood that, that those were not
1: words. Number one, what is Angela's name as a boy? In Sleepaway Camp. Okay. Number two. The character, James Gum is otherwise known as blank in the movie Blank. Number three. Clive Barker's mid-1980s short story, The Forbidden, which was adapted into Candyman from his Books of Blood series, featured the first incarnation of a I'm going to give you three options. A. The Puzzle Box B. Pinhead's Nails or C. The Cenobite Got it Number four The actor who played Bridget Emily Perkins in Ginger Snaps also acted in this 1980s horror miniseries (laughs) I love that movie And then number five How did Diablo Cody find the title for Jennifer's Body
0: also, love Diablo Cody's work.
1: Same. Okay. Let's take us to the end. I'll here. think on that. Think on that. The 90s. <laughs> the 90s brought us something different again. So, queer horror films started to really explore the LGBT world rather than use it in a place of subtext or a place to exploit like the traditional tropes and. And, you know, they didn't really, they weren't like praising convention as much. Okay. So Clive Barker would actually start with uh, Bring Us Nightbreed in 1990 on the heels of Hellraiser. And and this was a film about a group of monsters who hide from humanity. And I think that this one, this one came from a, a reference. So this is not out of my mind, but about finding a sense of belongingness in a world that wants to get rid of you. If there isn't, I mean... Hello, this film is the introduction of trauma and otherness in queer horror, although masked in like this practical effects and it's completely absurd. But yeah, you know, it was really, they were alone and they found each other and they were rejects. They were social rejects. And then we obviously have to discuss interview with the vampire, which was filled with all the homoerotic undertones but I also think it was, uh, and this, this was something that was I was reading upon that I found was kind of funny. It There's undertones of the difficulty of marriage surviving parenthood <laughs> because yeah. those two were really, you know, the fathers of Kirsten Dunst's character. Yeah. And Interview with the Vampire was unapologetically androgynous and sexual. It was, you know, they were bringing Very all so. of uh, um, Anne Rice's, work to life it was the screen was ready to see stuff that she had written so long ago and it it made a lot of us gays question parenthood i Mm. don't know if i want that other films of the 90s with subtext or themes would be scream there was a film called nadia and then psycho with vince vaughn which was fucking terrible i know and i like him too i do too and that was at his height and that was not good (laughs) it was a misstep And then lastly, you know, the turn of the century brought queer characters as protagonists, which Mm. finally they were no longer the monster or the perceived monster. So the 2000s had provided hope that queer characters in horror films could could be heroes, not just anti-heroes or villains. And the queer voice isn't covered with shame or filled with rage. It was more empowering. It was interesting. And it became much more individualized. It was less tropey. You know, so I think that We are now seeing more and more of that. We're not seeing the queer character that just is either the villain or dies. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they just happen to be queer. Yep. But it's not about the queerness. I'm just going to mention a list of some queer horror, not in any particular order for some people. Some I've mentioned already on the show, but Bride of Frankenstein, Dracula's Daughter, Cat People, Ghost Ship, Seed of Chucky, Jennifer's Body, Hellraiser, The Hunger wild boys fire island mm-hmm. interview with the vampire rocky horror picture show bound spiral which is a streaming right now and a good one it came out a couple years ago if you haven't seen it the haunting daughters of darkness high tension and knife in heart and there's so many many more so many more so i will end with this for all of you after all it's the monster that we all learn to enjoy the one who gets carried from movie to movie within a franchise not the heterosexual heroes who become forgotten, give or take some classic scream queens like our Laurie Strode. Mm-hmm. Modern horror and the evolution of Gen Z have normalized queer characters in horror. Sexual fluidity is losing its edge and gaze no longer exists in subtext. We're so vanilla now. <laughs> horror is not strictly about the pathology. And when a queer character is on screen, they are often in the position of the victim not the crazed and deranged killer. The predatory queer is something of the past. Many might believe that the queer themes in horror are losing their transgressive edge, but to those of us queers who found horror to be a safe and familiar place, we are comfortable with being the monster. Monsters are the controversy, the purpose, the shadow, the subject of envy and empathy, the antihero, But most importantly, the monster is the one you all remember when the credits roll. Depravity is not the result of a person's identity, but rather the manifestation of repressed desires. I will leave you with a quote from the movie Heavenly Creatures. Only the best people fight against all obstacles in pursuit of happiness. And man, we as a community certainly have. Horror is a happy place for many of us. Now I got some answers for you. (laughs) Oh okay.
0: She does that like she's brushing her teeth. She's just like.
1: What was Angela's name from Sleepaway Camp? Peter. Peter Barker. Peter Baker. Peter <laughs> Peter Baker. I mean Peter. The character <laughs> James Gum is otherwise known as Blank in the movie Blank.
0: Well, it's Silence of the Lambs and I'm assuming you're talking about his moniker, which was Buffalo Bill.
1: That's right. Remember when she says have you heard of a Jame Gum or Jim Gum? <laughs> so <laughs> she in that movie Oh there's Jim gum or a Jame, Jame gum, gum.
0: Her voice in it's that so bad. Movie. It's so funny and it's so you know, regional. She just nailed it in so many ways.
1: Anybody heard of a jame gum or a jam gum? gum?
0: And she's just looking at him and you're like, oh, fuck, He's it's like, about no. to go down. Clive
1: like, Barker. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Mid-1980s short story, The Forbidden, which was adapted into Candyman from his Books of Blood series, featured the first incarnation of what? Puzzle the, box? The pinhead. box. It's actually Pinhead's nails. Oh, wow. Yeah, But thought that was cool. Huh, so Candyman had the nails in his head? In the I guess the the Forbidden, which was adapted into Candyman. Got so it. yeah, it was a, a short story. The introduction of that is in and there. And the nails are in there. Okay. Yeah. And then the actor who played Bridget, Emily Perkins in Ginger Snaps, also acted in this 1980s horror miniseries.
0: Oh, I don't know about 80s. I think she was in Dead Like Me.
1: Stephen King's It. Oh, okay. She played the only little girl.
0: Gotcha. In that, yeah. Did you see Dead Like Me?
1: Uh, I yes. Oh, yeah. That's a great, great show. I, ha-
0: I actually have I ha- bought that on DVD. Like the all the. Yeah, seasons. I haven't seen <laughs>
1: the newest season though. Mm. How and then lastly, how did Diablo Cody find the title for Jennifer's Body? I don't know. It's um, it's the name of a whole song of a Courtney Love song, Jennifer's uh, Body. Oh gosh, that's fascinating. And she plays, uh, I think Courtney Love. Uh, she plays whole on the soundtrack for. Jennifer's body. That so. makes sense. That big makes fan sense. of the lady.
0: Yeah. I'm a big fan of some of that music. From some of that music. Thank you so much, Kathy. You're welcome.
1: Thank you for listening. I know that was a lot of information, but it's rich. There's a lot of history there.
0: Yeah. And I imagine that's really just the tip of the iceberg. Oh gosh. Like one could dive. So into much deeper. Like each decade and, and really make a meal out of all of it. You could do
1: three episodes on post-world war ii yeah just (laughs) well that's why they've done all these
0: big documentaries on it right
1: if y'all haven't seen queer for fear though it's great yeah and there's four episodes and um, they use a lot of humor which keeps it going it light yeah
0: we have such sights to show you oh god here she goes (laughs) please tune in for our next episodes the suffering (laughs) the sweet sweet suffering